Hello and welcome to the December edition of On The Horizon, our monthly podcast dedicated to helping you to navigate through the tricking world of golf course turf maintenance by helping you to look and think a little further forward. I'm Henry Beshley from ICL. And I'm Glenn Kirby from Syngenta. And it's Christmas, Henry! Well, not quite yet, Glenn. But nearly. Well, it's certainly on the horizon, Glenn. Yes, it is. And we've got some really exciting stuff this month to unwrap. Oh, do we indeed? Yes, we do. It's the Amenity Spray Operator of the Year time. Uh-huh. It's Disease Hell. <laughs> it's Secret Santa time. And it's my third visit to the Disturbance Theory Secret Society meeting. Oh, well, that's not so much of a secret now, is it, Glenn? No, but but did I mention? It's Christmas! You did, Glenn. I've got a very special Christmas poem for you at the end, Henry. Will the wonders ever cease, Glenn? So, Glenn, our sights are now on December, and not just Christmas. And to help us prepare agronomically, we always start by looking at the weather data, you know, to give us an idea of the climatic conditions that we might expect during the month ahead. Yes, and we do this because our memories simply cannot be trusted. No, they can't. You know, we all suffer from um, our perceptions being skewed or our memories Uh, being increasingly unclear or unreliable, and especially when it comes to the weather. But if we're needing to prepare properly, which we are, then it's really important that we try to ground our preparations and decision-making in reliable information. Absolutely. And so, Glenn, as always, let's start this month with a roundup of the moisture balance situation from the last 10 years. How is December looking on that front, Glenn? Wet, Henry. Very wet. Well, no, it's already been wet enough, Glenn. Yeah, I know. But December is a wet month, Henry. Generally one of our wettest. And now our evapotranspiration rate is really low too. So now we're down to about 20 millimetres of evapotranspiration in December. So pretty much every bit of rainfall that falls is going to get things a little bit wetter. Yes. Um, So we are continuing on with that downward spiral then. Um, The October period this year, which was on the back of a a wet summer and early autumn, was absolutely dreadful. And the start of November, when we're recording this, doesn't look like it's going to be much help either. Most locations in the UK and Ireland are now entering the winter period completely saturated and we're all going into December on completely the wrong foot. You know, course closures in October was bad enough, but now we're just topping up. And unless the site has exceptional drainage, then things are going to start getting really ugly underfoot. So, on that happy note, Glenn, when do things actually start to change? When do we stand a chance of starting to dry out? Well, the first chance we really get, Henry, will be next March. Uh, That's when those evapotranspiration rates begin to pick back up again, back to a useful level to move some moisture away from the soil. 
Okay, well, that's depressing. And of course, March isn't guaranteed to be dry. Um, so we've got some time yet in the trenches, Glenn, haven't we? And I suppose the best that we can hope for in the meantime is a big freeze. But while we are still on precipitation, what about snow, Glenn? What's the likelihood of any significant snowfall in December? You know, we talk about this every year, don't we? Yeah, and the story doesn't really change much, Henry. In December, Uh, snow is just not that common an occurrence. uh, The odds of getting snow are much greater in January. Yes, but it's not impossible, is it? It does happen every once in a while. Yeah, it does. 2018 was the last time we saw a decent dollop of snow in December, looking back at those records. Um, I'd say there's probably a 1 in 10 chance of seeing a dumping of snow at some point in December. Okay. So, probably best not to completely disregard it. No, not at all. Uh, But cold weather is entirely possible. Hmm. We, we in fact, saw that last year, didn't we? If you remember back yeah. last year, early December, we had that really cold hard snap. But we bounced out of it quickly back into mild weather again in that second half of the month. Yes, I do remember that, actually. And there were some really low temperatures, weren't there? Um, all right, OK. So if we are on to temperatures now, give us some examples, Glenn, of the temperature ranges that we might expect in December. Well, the coldest we've seen in the last 10 years is around minus two in the more coastal locations. And when we move inland, about minus five. Okay, so in terms of us thinking of the advent of winter, it can start to get pretty cold in December. Yeah, it can. It can get really cold, but we can also get some reasonably warm weather too. Almost Mm. all areas of the UK and Ireland have reached 15 degrees at times in the last decade in the month of December. In fact, last year is again a perfect example of that. Uh, Okay, well, go on. Okay, so the south coast last year, we saw minus five down here at the beginning of December. And by the end of the month, we were at 13 quite regularly. All right, so there's the potential for temperatures to range from anything from minus 5 to plus 15, I think you said, which is unhelpfully all over the place, Glenn, especially, you know, if we're trying to plan ahead. And the mild and and cold December temperatures could easily occur in the same year and maybe even in the same week. And so they are really difficult to prepare for. Yeah, and those milder extremes are probably more likely than the colder extremes based on recent trends. Yes, absolutely. December's seem to be going that way, don't Mm. they? Yes, they do. Uh, Look, last year we went into that cold spell that we had about the 3rd of December and we came out of it around the 18th of December. But then we went into this really mild weather spell with Birmingham and Winchester seeing 12 degrees on nearly every day from the 19th of December through to New Year's Eve. It then became this horrible prolonged period of mild weather day after day where Microdothium was in its happy place. Yeah, those those periods are really difficult, you know, agronomically, especially when it switches round from that cold snap straight into mild and wet. Yeah, several days of ground frosts followed by quick falls does present a lot of difficulties. We we move back quickly into that disease pressure and we see a lack of opportunities to spray due to the ground conditions. Mm. Uh, last year I had people asking me about spraying frozen ground with medallion as they knew once that frost came out of the ground they wouldn't even be able to get a sprayer out. 
Uh, now, we've also got to think about managing golfers during this problem period too, saying no to them playing because of frost coming out of the ground, which presents a challenge when we're trying to get a golfer around safely, let alone a sprayer if we need to. And if the golfers see you driving a sprayer around the golf course when they're not allowed a trolley, you know, on their parts, there is many, many frustrations. It's a horrible period of the year to deal with, Henry. It is indeed, Glenn. Okay. But what about if we're trying to picture a normal December? What are the daytime and nighttime averages? Uh, are they any more help if we're trying to plan ahead? Well, as always, Henry, the averages will hide for details. But I would be expecting an overnight average of kind of four to five degrees through December and a daytime average of eight to nine degrees. OK, so the average daily temperature ranges for December seem quite tight, actually, don't, don't they? Hiding those extremes that we were that we were speaking about. Um, and they appear, unhelpfully, to be loitering around the microdochium patch disease sweet spot all day long. And only seeming to offer very, very minimal opportunities for recovery grass growth. And so it seems pretty clear on the face of it that December might very well be the absolute climax of the microdochian patch disease season that has been building and building, well, since the end of summer. Yes, it does. And so we need to be prepared with our integrated management plan uh, to be able to cope with it yes we do okay and so right to complete the picture and fully focus our minds what i'm now most interested in glenn is the leaf wetness situation and the sub two degree stopping hours as we like to call them because they can help us gauge the um, probable disease pressure situation during December. These being the balance between those conditions that favour the development of microdochian patch disease, the leaf wetness, and those conditions that might help to slow it down, cold temperatures. Uh, okay, well, we know that leaf wetness hours are sky high at this time of year. Yes. We've got short days, we've got long nights. That means long periods of leaf wetness for everybody. Uh. But the sub two degree hours are a bit more interesting because December is when those stopping hours can begin to come into play. If we have a kind of quick look around the country, the south coast out here where I am, we see on average three hours a day of sub two degree hours. Uh. If we go into central Ireland, we see three hours a day per average in December. And if we go up to Scotland, uh, they're seeing about five and three quarter hours a day of temperatures below two degrees. OK, so well, that is a, a step on from the November figures uh, and those low temperatures, I suppose, are now starting to come into play. It feels like we could be entering some cold enough periods that might actually help slow down that disease, which you know, has to be good news. Yes, yeah, sort of, but it isn't the whole story, is it? Last year's mm. case study of a month of two extremes is an example of how sub-two-degree hours for a month, they give us a really useful steer and an insight into what we can expect. But as always, the average will hide for details. Well, OK, then. So if we backtrack a little... We've already mentioned that there was a cold snap in December last year. Yes, and this was reflected in the averages. For me on the south coast last December, our averages 
were six and three quarter hours of sub two degree hours a day. But we know that December last year was a month of two halves with the first half being cold and then a much milder back end. So I'm guessing to make up the average that the first half was at 13 hours a day on average um, stopping hours and the second half was well probably zero. Yeah exactly that. Monthly averages can help us form a plan but in reality you need to action your plan based on how conditions are actually unfolding now. Oh and this is where the turf advisor app comes in. Exactly Henry. Because we need to time our treatments with reference to the actual conditions. As far as we possibly can. Okay Uh, So what do we need to be keeping an eye on as we move through the month then? Well, in Turf Advisor, the metrics that I would be using to help me tune into the situation would be air temperature, uh, leaf wetness, which can be absolutely colossal at this time of year, soil temperature, I'd be watching that. The Greencast Microdokian model is useful, but not be all and end all. And I'd also be keeping an eye on the humidity too. Yeah. Okay, great. Um, Because we know from the recent data that we can all easily run into some high disease pressure in December. But for our control strategies to be successful, we need to be timing our treatments preventatively to anticipate the sort of upcoming pulses of pressure that might be looming on that horizon. Yes, we do. The recent data from recent years is just a warning, Henry. It's there to put us in the right mindset to prepare for the month. We need the latest weather data to tell us if and when to act. Okay, so what are are we looking out for? Well, forecasted consecutive days where temperatures are always above six degrees would be really worrying for me. And if we had a high run or a long run of high leaf wetness, that would be a worry. If we're seeing predicted disease pressures, at three or four on the microdokia model, that would start to concern me. And I'd be keeping an eye on when we last put a fungicide out and where exactly we are in our slow it down strategy. Yeah, and of course, keeping a watchful eye on those spray windows. Yeah, I think we always need to be looking at those spray windows at this time of year because they are in short supply. Okay, well, there we have it. You know, in a nutshell, December is a time when we experience the shortest days of the year. Uh, The turf growth potential is on the floor and uh, the leaf wetness is colossal. And cold weather is only helpful for some of the time. And mild weather is likely to be a driver for disease activity for sustained periods at other times. Yes. Um, And so we need to keep an eye on our Turf Advisor app, Glenn. Yeah. And that is why December is when we begin to reach the climax of the second microdokian patch disease battle, Henry. Yeah, we are really in the thick of it now. So keep holding on, everybody. In January, we do normally turn a corner. Okay. Well, very good, Glenn. And hopefully we all now have a better idea about what we are up against during December. So, Glenn, tell me about December as a course manager. It already feels like it's going to be a slog this year after all the rain. So do the golfers really appreciate just how difficult things are at this time? Or do they still expect perfect playing conditions no matter what? Well, Henry, growth has gone pretty much, hasn't it? We're getting cold weather. 
the days are short and I think the golfers are finally accepting it's winter and that usually means a little Christmas spirit and joy floating around. However, in 2023, with all the course closures that we saw late October and early November due to those high levels of rainfall we all experienced, there is a chance that we're going to be going into this period with our best political hats on rather than our normal Santa hats. Oh, yeah, well, maybe tin hats would be better, Glenn. Yeah, probably would. Managing the membership during course closure, after course closure, after course closure, and managing those buggy bands and trolley bands. This year, that ride into Christmas is going to be long and hard. So there is a strong chance that we will have used up all of that goodwill this year by Christmas in 2023. And I think there's going to be a lot of golf course managers are out there who are desperate for a break from the pressure. Yes. Okay, so, you know, eyes open. During December, we will inevitably be seeing a downturn in course quality um, being brought on by all those factors of low growth levels, high levels of play, and, of course, those poor ground conditions. But, you know, there are always those keen golfers that will still be desperate to get out and play despite those conditions. And so the pressure will still be on to keep the courses open and playable. And then, you know, we might expect even higher levels of play over the Christmas holidays to pile on even more pressure. And, you know, this is at what we both think of as being probably the most agronomically dangerous time of the year, the dreaded Christmas break. Yes, the damage that can be done between Christmas Eve and the 4th of January is legendary. We're going to be on limited staff, we will be tired and exhausted, and golfers will be desperate to get out and play golf. There are so many things that can go wrong here. Yeah, and then there's the, the issue of it being the holiday season, and quite rightly that the club and the members will be thinking that the greenkeeping team should take a few days off which is very kind of them henry yes but while standards might not be the highest priority right now it is an incredibly important period to protect the golf course we've already identified just how agronomically important this time of year is with those mild temperatures and lots of opportunities for pathogens to spread mm. and it's a time where for extended periods we have significantly reduced staffing levels so there are lots of essential maintenance practices that can easily get missed yeah it's a difficult balance to strike isn't it glenn Right, okay, so December is a tough time with all that play on those poor ground conditions. And so, above all else, we need to protect the course. Yes, we do. And then Christmas is a time where they may want to say thank you for all our hard work and say, go on, take a break. And right at the time when uh, our battle against disease is at its very peak. Yeah, a time when we cannot take our eye off that agronomic ball, Henry. Yeah, it's it, look, it's going to be a tough time, isn't it? And it probably won't feel much like a holiday. Merry Christmas, everybody. So, Henry, what are the agronomic risks that may confront us in December? Well, well, Glenn, we've already talked about a few, haven't we? There's certainly the potential for winter to turn up in December with low temperatures and frosts uh, to limit the turf growth potential. Um, and there might even be some snow, although that generally tends to occur in the new year. 
and there is a fairly certain likelihood of a continued moisture surplus in December to keep the course saturated underfoot. And of course, and most worryingly, I think, there is also the real risk of a continuation of the mild and damp autumnal conditions that we've been experienced to keep disease and pest pressure, I suppose, at uncomfortably high levels. Yes, and we saw from the weather data, didn't we, that the conditions can actually be quite variable in December. And so we need to keep a close eye on the Turf Advisor app to see how things are going to drop this year. Yeah, but it's those wet ground conditions that are probably our biggest concern right now. Yes, and there may well be a lot more rain to come. And coupled with the low light levels and the low evapotranspiration rates, things aren't going to get much better anytime soon. No, and this will probably already be highlighting for some sites the need for extra drainage infrastructure or uh, investment in that area. But we need to be realistic. There are limits on what can be achieved on, on courses that are situated on heavy soils especially. Yes, yeah, so it's generally the worm casting, isn't it, that causes the most problem in that situation. And that can result in really hellish playing conditions and rapid course deterioration. Yeah, and the worm casting has already been prolific this autumn as a result of the mild and wet conditions. And so traffic management around the wider course, well, it's already vital, isn't it, to prevent that sort of widespread devastation developing. And so I suppose, as we've already mentioned, that we'll all be hoping for a sustained cold snap to maybe allow us to... Um, give the course a bit of a rest and stop it from becoming a complete mud bath. You know, it's been a really difficult time for clay-based courses this autumn with all the rain. So some respite would be, you know, very much welcome. Yeah, and it may come. We got a couple of weeks of cold weather around this time last year, so fingers crossed. But it quickly reverted back to mild and damp by the time of the Christmas break. So who knows what the weather will bring in 2023 but to date it has been a tough one with all the rain we've had yes and looking at my turf advisor app the leaf wetness uh levels have already been huge throughout throughout october and into november making conditions highly conducive for the development of microdochian patch disease yes it's been a long hard battle too so far this year without any real let-ups so far uh, we've had to keep going with our preventative microdochian patch disease control strategies. It hasn't always been easy to stay on track with our application schedules, with all the wind and rain. And so we always need to be aware of our application or spray opportunities to make sure we're able to take them. And we've got to be constantly referring to the spray window category on the Turf Advisor app to yes. give us a sight on those possibilities for applications and help us prioritise them properly. Yes, well, you know, because our integrated disease management plans uh, kind of require us to make regular treatments, which can be problematic at this time of year. And this is why Andy, Dr Andy Owen, has, has worked so hard to simplify our recommendations in that area at this time, you know, just down to the essentials. Yeah, Dr Andy Owen's done a top job on that one. Yes, he has. And so, with the disease pressure still likely to be high, essentially we're planning to be still running with our belt and braces ITM approach during December. And 
Uh, so we have our background, slow it down, cultural management strategies running underneath our preventative fungicide applications. And so we we will need to be using the spray window facility on the Turf Advisor app to help us optimise all those treatment opportunities. But in the face of what are highly likely to be very limited uh, spray windows, I think we might be prioritising our fungicide applications first above anything else. And so, Glenn, what fungicides are we tending to use during December? Well, in terms of fungicides at this time of year, your choice will be very much dependent on the growing conditions. And this is also an area where the Turf Advisor app can help us out. As we mentioned last time, just by keeping an eye on those growth potential levels. Because our choice in December will probably be between Instrata Elite, which is a dual active contact and systemic, or Medallion, which is a single active contact. And your decision is going to be based on your level of growth, which would generate an uptake of that diphenoconazole systemic component of Instrata Elite. But there are some situations across the country in some years where it could be our new fungicide technology, Acernity. It's a tricky time of year and it deserves our full attention. So we're going to dive into fungicide choices in part two. Very good, Glenn. And we've already mentioned it, but what about the risk of snowfall causing us extra headaches when it comes to disease control? Uh, Not particularly likely in December, Henry, but of course it can happen. Um, Essentially, we'll need our fungicides in place if an extended period of snow cover is forecasted, but it's more likely to be cold and wet and those kind of snowy type conditions are more likely in January so maybe we should pick up on that one next month but we should definitely be in our full-on preventative strategies at this point a year anyway yes we should okay um, so in terms of our slow it down options we're still focusing on plant health but you know it's clear that we won't need so much nutrition at this time and we are also focusing on the use of iron sulfate and specialist surfactants using our 20 litres of green master liquid effect iron tank mixed with 10 litres of H2Pro Flow Smart. We might be considering a, a low level of water soluble fertiliser at this time with the sort of Sportsmaster WSF 20 naught plus SMX, which is sulfate of ammonia based, but only if conditions are appropriate. For a little nitrogen boost, I'm, I'm sure it would be just down south. But, you know, it might be that um, 10 to 15 kilograms per hectare applied, you know, if conditions are suitable, would deliver us, you know, a nice little boost. Maybe one kilogram of nitrogen per hectare per week over a two to three week period. You never know, really. I, don't, I just think it's, you, you know, we shouldn't have preconceived ideas. We should definitely be taking, as it, taking it as it comes. And you never know, Glenn, we might even get a chance to apply some H2 Pro uh, Dew Smart. Um, but again, for that to happen, the surfaces will need to be dry at the time of application uh, to stick the surfactant to the leaf in order to achieve the best uh, longevity. And so I think in that case, we're looking out for sunny weather and maybe an opportunity to get out and and spray a little later on in the day. But if this isn't possible, we certainly shouldn't forget the importance of all our other leaf wetness removal techniques, such as sort of rolling, brushing, swishing, etc., because leaf wetness is such a key driver 
for microdokian patch disease. Yes, it is. We are very much still in the thick of our second battle against that problem, aren't we? Yeah. Um, you know, and we just need to be on the front foot with it. Yeah, especially with the Christmas break coming up. Yeah, and I think we should discuss that in some depth later on too, Henry. Yeah, absolutely. It is a big issue. Okay. You know, if we're on disease, Glenn, we shouldn't forget that anthracnose basal rot can become a problem, especially in wet conditions, which, you know, obviously highly likely at this time. That one can be a real problem too, can't it? Yeah, it can. Um, but our integrated microdokian patch disease management plan generally tends to cover that off as well. Yeah, they are. The fungicides we're using at this time of year for microdokian patch disease are also generally pretty effective on anthracnose too. Yes, but anthracnose can certainly arise on the on the back of the plant stress that's associated with the development of black layer or stagnant anaerobic soil conditions. And so you would need to keep an eye on that to guide the need for aeration work, for instance. But obviously the development of anaerobic soil conditions will point you towards wider agronomic issues such as poor drainage or high levels of organic matter in the upper soil profiles, which would need to be dealt with as a matter of priority and as and as soon as possible, really, because that can be devastating. Yeah, and of course, not everyone's got a decent root zone, have they? Many greens are pretty unique and have their individual challenges. Yes, of course. Um, but, you know, we are keeping our fingers crossed that the weather might actually turn cold in December. Yeah, I think everyone's hoping for a good cold hard snap now. Yeah, I mean, that would help slow the disease down and, and maybe any soil-borne pest activity as well. But, you know, some good hard frosts would also help firm up the surfaces and hopefully reduce the level of play. Yep, but there's going to be still those ones that want to get out and play. Yes, it's old Jim, isn't it, and his mates. They always want to get out on a Tuesday morning or whatever it is. And so we, we do need to probably have that tin hat on. And so a little care and patience is required both politically as well as agronomically in December. And we discussed last year that we do need a frost policy in place to allow us to temporarily close the course or play to temporary greens if we think that play in frosty conditions or when the frost is coming out of the ground uh, will cause too much damage. But that very much depends on the individual situation and is not necessarily a cut and dried situation. No, it's not. Uh, during my time as a greenkeeper and as a golf course manager, I saw all sorts of variations of this. But but I have seen golf courses kept open successfully during frosty conditions without any turf damage. Hmm. For me, it really boils down to health and safety issues, the worry of slippery surfaces, and avoiding play when that frost is coming out of the ground, yes. which can sometimes cause problems with root break and having longer-term implications. But I would always, 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 always reserve the right to close the greens down when I feel they are beginning to deteriorate. This can possibly be perceived as a lack of consistency, but for me, it is the key factor. Playing golf on frozen greens a couple of times is unlikely to do much damage, but prolonged play really could. We just need to do our best to safeguard that turf, um, uh, without causing too much aggravation with those members who want to play on a Tuesday morning at eight o'clock, no matter what. You know, we used to rely on frost closures to give the greens a rest back in the day, but now it seems more likely that the other two Fs are going to do it for us. 
the other Fs, Glenn. Yeah, there are three reasons for course closures, Henry. Frost, fog and flooding. It seems that fog and flooding seem to account for far more course closures these days than frost does. Yeah, but we but, but we still live in the hope, don't we, that, we're, that we'll get some good hard frost to just, you know, slow down growth and reduce the need for mowing and shut down the casting worms along with, you know, all other forms of pest activity. Yeah, and whilst we're talking pest activity, we need to be thinking about leather jackets again, I'm afraid. Oh. Um, you know, hopefully, we've had successful control with our celebrant applications at the back end of October, and maybe even we were tying Nemotrident into that program. Mm. But now is when we need to keep an eye on things, especially in those untreated areas. Okay, so is December the time when we start our leather jacket monitoring strategy glenn yes it is if soil temperatures are up above seven or eight degrees and we think that grubs might be active you know we have previously discussed the use of small scale sheeting small one square meter squares um, and doing that in areas that have been treated and areas that haven't this to help us understand the levels of control we have got from our integrated turf management program uh, uh, using that meter squared tarpaulin pegged down on the turf overnight to bring the grubs up to the surface and then getting in and counting and assessing the grub activity in the mornings it's when we build this database of information that is what will help us decide how things are going to shape up next spring in terms of the level of infestation. Okay, so what sized grubs might we expect to see in December, Glenn? Well, in December, it will vary depending on when the eggs were laid. This is when I start to get reports of multiple sized grubs coming in. You know, they're unlikely to be massive yet, but they will certainly be visible now. If you get down on your hands and knees and start looking, you'll see them. Those September hatchings might well be quite developed by this point. Um, you know, so... December is all about building a picture of how successful that program has been and how big is the risk for us for spraying, um, you know, because that will all start to highlight what additional measures we might have to put in place in the spring. Okay, and so based on our findings uh, of a possibly emerging infestation in localised areas, we might be starting to plan for some large-scale sheeting in the spring, uh, maybe some... Uh, nutrition here and there or extra stress mitigation strategies with the things like the early application of surfactants you know to limit the level of direct damage early on in the season but what about the aeration of treated areas Glenn what's your what's your advice on that at this time uh, well we know from our work that an aerated surface an aerated putting surface can accommodate higher numbers of leather jackets than the equivalent area with no aeration holes these elevator shafts can enable leather jackets to protect themselves from the air temperatures, feed successfully without risking wandering around at the surface, and quickly move deep down to avoid those foraging birds. Mm. We also know that a saloprene creates a long-term residual effect at the surface that we don't really want to puncture, as that will create opportunities for insects to avoid the layer of a saloprene we've created. And we can avoid this risk by switching to slit tines rather than solid tines, but each pressure situation, each golf course will have a slightly different plan here. But the thing to remember is the more open voids you have in your putting surfaces, the more opportunities you have for leather jackets to live in those safe environments. You know, the more holes, the higher a population your turf can support. So keep an eye on your site and plan for that in mind. For me, the biggest win is simply switching from solid times to slip times. Okay, very good. So there is certainly 
plenty to think about in December. We've got traffic, we've got disease, and we've got pests, which all means we are on full alert and very much in damage limitation mode. Yeah, fingers crossed for a good hard cold snap, and let's not take our eye off the ball during Christmas. No. But if we prepare properly beforehand and organise ourselves over the break, then we should be able to recharge the batteries for New Year. Yep, it's never easy, Glenn, and we will have a recap on all that in part two. So, Henry, that's it for part one. Can you believe it? It's December again, and we are looking to put another year to bed. I know, Glenn, uh, but it's still all to play for in December, isn't it? And we just need to stay focused right down to the bitter end. We do, Henry. And so in part two, we have disease to contend with and staying focused through the Christmas break. Yes, and we also have your latest application tip of the month. And we also have all the fun of the fair with our latest meeting of the Disturbance Theory Secret Society. But first, a cup of Glen, because it's Secret Santa time. Oh, I'll get the kettle on, Henry. Welcome back to part two of the December edition of On the Horizon. Thanks, Glenn. And in part two, to celebrate Christmas, we will be discussing how to choose the right fungicide in great depth. Staying focused over Christmas. And of course, your application, Chip of the Month, which is a real cracker. Quite literally, Henry. Indeed. And there's lots more besides. But first, it's tea break time. So what have you been drinking this month, Henry? Well, seeing as Christmas is on the horizon, I have been incorporating Betty's Spiced Christmas Blend into the mix. It contains, and I quote, the finest quality black china tea combined with orange peels, lemon peels, cinnamon and golden safflower petals which is a kind of thistle, Glenn. Sounds fancy, Henry. How is it? It's Christmassy, Glenn. It fills me with an overwhelming feeling of peace, tranquility and kindness towards everyone. Makes a change from your usual Scrooge, then? Yes, it's a nice break, Glenn. How about you? Well, this month, Henry, I am drinking more water. More water. Yes, remember, I'm detoxing. Yes, of course. How's it going, by the way? Well, I got a kidney infection, and so the doctor said I need to drink more water. Life is never straightforward, is it, Glenn? No, it really isn't, Henry. I spend most of November in the toilet. Anyway, on the bright side, it's Secret Santa time. It is, Glenn. And I should say that the China set that you gave me last year went down an absolute storm in our office to such an extent that both me and Ed now wear ceremonial kimonos at work. Nice. Shall I go first? Go ahead, Glenn. I hope you like it. Right, here we go. Ooh. Oh, very good, Henry. Uh, Into the escape room advent calendar. <laughs> Are you saying I need to escape? 
Uh, well, no, I just thought that you needed to move on from magic tricks this year, you know, to impress your girls, and this year, wow them with your powers of deduction. That's unlikely, Henry. They already run rings around me. But oh. thank you, and I'm sure we'll enjoy solving the riddles together. My pleasure, Glenn. So here we go. This is this is yours to me. Hope you enjoy it. Yeah, I will do it. Can we just... I'll just... Hang on. That's it. Right. Oh, and it's... Uh, oh, can you hear that? Very good, Glenn. And absolutely perfect. Wow. It's an advent calendar for dogs. Nice. Uh, with, yes, with a thank you very much, with a doggy treat for each day of Advent. Peggy Sue is going to be absolutely delighted. You know, she might even sit on command for once, you know, if she gets the gist, and her tail might even fly off with all the excitement. Very good, and thank you, Glenn. You have given me the gift of giving which is, of course, the greatest gift of all. My pleasure, Henry. I realised after a year of being a dog owner that a moment of relief or even obedience once a day is the greatest gift of all. Yes. So, Glenn, are you going to be um, still detoxing until Christmas? I am. And do you think you'll have a massive blowout when it comes to the big day and do the traditional sleeping it off in an armchair in front of the telly while everyone else enjoys the day. Well, go around to mum and dad, so fortunately I'll be driving. And if mum gets out the baby sham, I reckon one glass and I'll be completely sozzled. <laughs> and no one wants to see that, Glenn. No, it's bad enough when I'm sober, mate. Well, look, you'll do for me, Glenn, any day of the week. Bless you, Henry. Bless you. Okay, Glenn, so we have discussed the changing weather patterns in previous episodes, uh, but you think that December is the time when turf managers in the UK and Ireland feel the greatest impact of climate change. Yes, look, we're seeing the impact of climate change on a regular basis, aren't we? And 2023 has proved once again that records are meant to be broken. June provided the UK and Ireland with the hottest June on record, and whilst that heat didn't persist for the UK and Ireland beyond June, it certainly did around Europe. September was the warmest September on record by a whopping 2.5 degrees. The storms and rainfall that October delivered broke records for many on the east of the country, mm. and we are well on track to be the warmest year on record once again. But when it comes to turf management, the biggest challenge I feel comes in the smallest and least reported couple of degrees extra warmth that we get in December. We can clearly see if we start plotting those temperatures, the trend lines, and we can see that there is this slow increase in temperatures over time. But it's how that plays out at this time of year that is important for us. We have short days, high leaf wetness, and couple that with the warmer temperatures that we're seeing, and we have perfect conditions for microdochian patch. Yes, and so slightly milder temperatures are um, especially dangerous in December because it encourages disease, but we don't generally get you know enough of an uplift for sustained turf growth. Even if the temperatures there are there, you know we don't get the 
the light levels, for instance, and the, and the soil temperatures are still generally too low. So it's like a kind of perfect storm, isn't it, those of an extra couple of degrees? Yeah, but we're hopefully beginning to see a few cold temperatures kick in now to help a little, but we just don't see enough of them to cancel out the warm temperatures that we see. Yeah, and so that sounds like really bad news to me. Are there any other trends that you can see that are worth reporting? Yeah, interestingly, uh, in recent times, there is definitely a trend for the second half of December to be the warmer half of the month. Well, now that is weird, isn't it? You'd expect it to be the other way around. Yeah, you would. And it should be, I think. I can't see any meteorological reason for why it's like that. I think it's just a quirk of recent times and it is by no means guaranteed. But the trend is definitely for the back half of the month to be milder than the first half. Okay, so the increased sort of disease activity over Christmas that we often talk about might not just be a greenkeeping myth. But that's important, isn't it? Because based on the recent data, we could get to the middle of the month after a cold snap and feel that we're through the worst of the disease pressure and then get sucker punched with mild weather later on. Yeah, exactly like we saw last year, Henry. 18th of December, we were all sitting pretty, convinced we were through the worst of it, only for the last two weeks of December to warm up and bite hard. So no matter what condition we're in and whatever the weather really, we can't assume that we are safe. Not yet. We still have a few weeks to go before we can relax. Just a touch. Yeah, that's right. And the further south we are, the more likely that is. I think the warning here is to be on your guard Uh. all the way into that new year. Okay, so is there any good news? Well, we can use these warmer days to help us out a little bit and get better levels of control from our fungicides. We can target systemics around those warmer days that we see to help us get the best out of them. And we know that we do get those warm periods in December. The driver for the increasing averages and temperatures in December is the increase in those high temperatures that we see. Okay, so is there any data to support this? Yeah, I've gone back to 1984 with this one and created kind of a five-year rolling average so as to smooth the data out a little. Now, for me on the south coast, if we go back to the early 90s when I was at school, we would see about nine days a month where we had high temperatures getting above 10 degrees. So nine days out of the 31, we would see above 10 degrees at some point in the day. Same through the 2000s, but since 2010, that has been closer to 19 days in December when we get above 10 degrees. And it is dramatic as that, Henry. It's about 2010 where we saw this big change, where the amount of days in December where we go above 10 doubled okay so what about ilkley then you know here in the center of the uk glenn well if we look at the 80s 90s and the 2000s for you you were sitting around three days on average in december where you got above that 10 degrees but since 2010 again that has lifted to six days Mm. in december they get above 10 degrees so you're still far lower than us down here down on the south coast but it has still doubled for you Yeah, so we've both doubled um, in the number of days above 10 degrees C in the month of December in recent years. But bigger numbers for you on the South Coast than for us up here. Yeah, it's still a very worrying trend. Yes, it is. But um, we also know that the conditions are actually and unhelpfully all over the place in December, which makes it impossible to make any 
broad brush type of fungicide applications for this time of year. We actually have to, as we were saying earlier, make reference to conditions as they are unfolding at the time. Yes, we do. And we now have in our portfolio fungicides for growth, things like FR321 and Acernity. We have uh, fungicides for intermittent growth, which would be something like Instrata Elite. And we have fungicides for slow or no growth, Medallion. And as the data shows us, December can throw any of those situations at us. And we could have very different conditions based on our location and the year, which is where Turf Advisor can really help us out. This is where we can use the growth potential model in there to really help us decide which technology is right for us. Fungicides for growth, 20% growth potential or over, FR321 in Acernity, or we use our fungicides for intermittent growth, which is anything above 5% growth potential, that's in Strata Elite, or if we're in slow to no growth, under 5% growth potential, then we would lean on Medallion. Okay, so look, we're just going to have to recap this, aren't we? Um, so as a rule of thumb, you're saying that using the Turf Advisor app, that if we go over 20% growth potential then um, thinking about fungicides it's the systemics that we might lean to the acernity and fr321 maybe even heritage but if we are over five percent growth potential then we're in that instrata elite territory and if we're below five percent growth potential then it's medallion yeah now whilst that's really helpful to steer us in the direction of the best fungicide technology for that moment Mm. we also have to tie that in with a fungicide program as we talked about earlier in the year so that needs some planning because we are limited in the number of products we can use yes we you know we have to rotate um, our mode of action don't we and we also have fairly significant label restrictions on the number of applications for each product that we can make in a year. Yeah, and that's why all the products in the range are so important. It would be easy to just rely on Instrata Elite because it is such a flexible product, but we can only apply that twice. So bringing products like Acernity to the range is critical as that gives us another two applications of chemistry that we can rotate. And Medallion with its four applications on the label can really help to bulk that program out if we need it. And proper use of heritage during the summer months, because that's another four applications as well. So rather mm. than just leaning on the safe technology. Which would be um, Instrata Elite. Yeah, it's important we lean on all the technology and understand yeah. where we can use it and place it in our programs. And I'm hoping that using Growth Potential and Turf Advisor can really help us out with that. Okay, so what about December then? Well, fundamentally, in December, we can easily be leaning on any of those three types of fungicide technology. We could be in fungicides for growth, FR321 or Acernity. We could be in fungicides for intermittent growth, Instrata Elite. Or we could be on fungicides for slow or no growth, depending on what the weather is that year, our location and our program. All of those technologies could come into play to get us through this period. So think about your location, think about what sort of weather pattern you're in, and think about your program. And it all, for me, points to more planning and structuring of that program earlier in the year. Yes, it does. Okay, so what about our turf pigment rider, Glenn? We already know that December is a period of low light intensity. So talk us through the value of rider 
when we're thinking about our fungicide tank mixes. Okay, well, the first thing to note is the slower the growth, the better value we get from this product. Mm. We've also noted that when tank mixed with fungicides, we see significantly better turf quality than just a fungicide on its own. And the data shows that how turf quality really hangs on for a long time during those colder months that are just around the corner. What about low light, Glenn? Are there any downsides uh, to using Rider at this time? Well, we did some work on it, actually, because I was a little concerned about this and just wanted to make sure we were advising the right thing. And we actually saw an uplift in plant quality. Now, that's down to the pigment effects rather than any physical improvement to the plant. But I'll take what I can get at this time of year lifting the colour and that hanging around during these low growth conditions is a big win for me. But the important thing is that we saw no downside to plant quality, density or health. A rider would definitely be in my tank during this period of the year. Yeah, I agree, Glenn. I've used it and seen it in loads of trials and we always see the benefit of this time of year. Okay, so in summary, in December, we could be using growth potential to guide us in our fungicide selections. That can help us select the best technology for the weather period we are in. We should be looking at fungicides for growth, which is 20% growth potential plus things like FR321 and Acernity. Might be for mild years in the south coast, but we could be in that territory. We should definitely understand we've got fungicides for intermittent growth, which is in Strata Elite, which is anything for above 5% growth potential and above. And then if we're under that 5% growth potential, if we move into that cold weather where we've got slow to no growth, we should be looking at medallion. And Turf Advisor can help guide us on all of that, looking forward at what patterns are coming our way. But we also need to think about our program here and use this information to help us to build better programs. Mm, Absolutely. And don't forget to use some rider too, you know, to help us get through this tricking time. Okay, Glenn, you wanted to talk about Christmas disease. I do, Henry, because I honestly feel that the 12 days of Christmas, that period from the 24th of December, Christmas Eve, where we all pop in for the morning and happily go on our way through to when we all come back in January, those 12 days, that period has the potential to be the most challenging period of the year for microdochium pressure. And since microdochium patch disease has the potential to be the most destructive of all the diseases in the UK and Ireland and the recovery period is now long and slow this 12 days if the weather turns against us it can be brutal and if we get Um, caught out and if we get it wrong we've got January February March April and May until we can be confident about strong recovery opportunities again these 12 days, in my opinion, are critical. Yeah, and so you're not just being a Grinch about this, are you, Glenn? Um, you're just trying to make sure that we don't drop the ball over Christmas. Yeah, that's right. It's a time when things can go wrong really quickly. And exactly at a time when we have the least number of eyes on the ground, our team's expertise is diluted and possibly our attention is on other things, such as who's had the last green triangle out of the quality street, and whether the kids are playing with your new Lego Star Wars character. I get the picture. But we should say that it's not always the case, is it, that the weather will will always be conducive for high microdochium patch disease pressure over Christmas? No, it's not. And hopefully it won't be. Hopefully it's cold and hard. But we ran the odds last year. And in general, over the last decade, one in every two or three years will probably see a 12 days of Christmas with zero sub-two degree uh. hours at all. 
We know we've got high leaf wetness, but that's all bad news. So we should expect that there is going to be a 50-50 chance uh, that the holiday period is going to be difficult in terms of microdochium patch disease pressure, which is a time of reduced staffing levels and less eyes on the ground, which for me means that we should certainly put a plan together um, to make sure that we're properly focused and prepared for it if it comes. Indeed, we need to stay focused on slow it down, zero it out. Focus on that strategy on the build up to this period if we want to go into Christmas with our best chances of coming out clean. Okay, so what are you suggesting, Glenn? Well, I think the traditional thinking is throw some medallion down on Christmas Eve and everything will be all right. Now, that may have worked with Dakinil in the 1990s with an average of seven or eight sub two degree hours over that period but now with less sub two degree hours to rely on we simply cannot rely on one application to get us through so we need to maintain a real focus through this period on what's important just to ensure we keep our surfaces within reach of our goal yeah and our goals being plant health sward density and the creation of firm and smooth putting surfaces. That's right. And this doesn't mean more fungicides necessarily. It means more of that supporting technology around the fungicide. It means more cultural practices to help slow down the pressure during December. Things like dew dispersants, iron at appropriate times, correct nutrition, good leaf wetness management, all well-timed. You know, we have to be building to this period with more of a focus on that strategy rather than a simple fungicide on Christmas Eve and then we've got to remember that integrated strategies don't stop at Christmas. They need to run through that 12 days because pressure can be brutal. Mm, absolutely. So, Glenn, what is the upshot? So here's my 12 days of Christmas maintenance suggestions for keeping microdochium patch at bay. Mm. Number one, plan your fungicide application in around the week commencing 20th December. If it's cold, go with medallion, less than 5% growth potential. If it's warm in strata elite, that's above 5% growth potential. If it's really warm, then probably acernity if we're above 20% growth potential. Mm. Number two, be aware of the weather coming your way. Warm air from the south or cool air from the north. Number three, tune in to Turf Advisor to understand all the climatic factors involved. What's coming your way? Number four, ensure your team due off as an absolute minimum. It's more important than bunkers or tea markers. It is not a job to be skipped. Number five, tell your membership in advance that bunkers will only be touched up or raked on alternate days because greens are the priority, will get the most input and are the most important. Number six, when it comes to dewing off, let's keep as close to play as we can. Too often I had people coming in super early to get the job done and go home, but that is risky as those dews can reform. Number seven, we need to be aware of what the most effective method of dew removal is. My personal opinion is that it's still rolling is the best, cutting is next, brushing, switching, dew brush, especially those big floppy ones, nothing at the end. I'd love to do a study on this one day to really understand what impact they all have. 
Number eight, switch up the order you due off in, especially if it takes a long time to get round your site. Let's make sure the 18th doesn't sit covered in due two hours longer than everything else. Number nine, ensure the team understand the importance of due management. A walk around and a bunker tidy is not acceptable. Number 10, schedule in the right number of staff to do the job. Give them the time back later if you can. Number 11, schedule an application in the 12 days of Christmas. Add iron, a juice mart, a flow smart. Keep that program going. And you can seal the sprayer up, you can get everything ready to go if the weather conditions allow, measure everything out, make sure it's ready because we don't want people at work longer than we need to. After all, it's Christmas. And finally, number 12, leave an untreated plot somewhere to see what Santa could have bought you if you hadn't put all the work in. Yeah, very good, Glenn. Good advice. It's not an easy balance to strike, is it, with the sort of holiday periods and people needing a rest but we you know we simply can't drop the ball so yeah very good thank you for that no we can't the agronomics odds are henry that will be moving in one direction and that's less sub two degree stopping hours or as i worry about christmas is littered with microdokia more phone calls that fungicides don't last as long as they used to leading to more anxiety for golf course managers and i think the more we can do to maintain our itm during the 12 days of christmas the more chance we have of remaining in a good position Mm, very good, Glenn, and good luck, everyone. Okay, Henry, with the Spray Operator of the Year Awards on us, and of course, last year was a massive victory for the podcast, with two listeners finishing first and second. Yes, well done, Darren, and Keith as well. And now the registration process is open. So we want everyone to get on quickly and register. Yes, and so just to warn you, there are five questions that you will need to answer to qualify, but don't let that put you off. No, because they are quite straightforward. And so, Glenn, do you know what they are? No, Henry, I don't. But the Amenity Spray Operator of the Year Organising Committee have released a set of commemorative crackers for the festive season. Have they indeed, Glenn? No, Henry. It's just another elaborate ruse to inspire people to enter the awards that is purely in our imagination. Very good use of the false narrative, Glenn. Thank you. So to help everyone with their entries for the Amenity Spray Operator of the Year Award, shall we have an imaginary podcast Christmas do? Why not, Glenn? And I love Christmas crackers. So shall we crack on? Sure. And so here they are. Very nice, Glenn. And it looks like they've really gone upmarket with these crackers. Yeah, none of your cheapos for this, Henry. No. So uh, first one up. Are you ready? Yep. And right, here we go. Oh. oh. Very good. I won that one. Oh, look, I've got a tiny comb. Well, how useful for you, Henry. And a pink hat. Yes, I'm going to put that on. Is there a joke? Yes, there is. Shall I read it out? Go on. Right, okay. Here we go. I say, I say, I say. What does LERAP stand for? Is it localised environmental risk assessment for pesticides? Local ecological risk assessment for pesticides? Local environmental registration and approval, uh, sorry, and approval for pesticides, or 
local ecological registration and approval for pesticides. This one's not very fun, is it, Glenn? No, uh, as is the tradition. But I think the punchline is local pesticides. And it's really important because this shows we know how to use the products around watercourses so as to ensure the safest products are being used at an appropriate distance. You know, Glenn, I think the listeners should imagine you swearing like a trooper during the, the bleeping out of the answer. They'll see a whole new side to you. Good idea, Henry. All right, let's, uh, let's pull the blue one. Yes, OK. You ready? And... Uh... OK, got it. Oh, oh, you got that ooh, one. Oh, oh, nice. A yellow hat. Yes, and here's a, a giant plastic paper clip. How useful. Yeah. Any any jokes in this one? Yes, look, here it is. Um, right, hang on. Okay, look. Knock, knock. Who's there? What's the optimum wind speed for spraying herbicides? Is it four to six miles an hour? Less than one mile an hour, six to nine miles an hour, or two to four miles an hour? Well, I think the answer is... <laughs> to f- miles per hour. You really are a potty mouth, Glenn. Yes, and of course, this one is so important as this is critical to minimise drift, make sure we hit the target. Yes. With spray day so limited, there is always the temptation to bend the rules here, but knowing the law it's critical to making sure we stay within it. Yes. What's interesting though, Henry, is that wind speed is measured at 10 meters, as when they put all of that together, that was the data that was available. They didn't have a two meter measurement, but that's something we're working on in Turf Advisor, a two meter wind speed and a 10 meter wind speed. So keep your eyes open for that one. I tell you what, this is the best Christmas do that I've ever been on, Glenn. It's good fun, isn't it? Yeah, and these jokes are terrific. Way better than the usual ones. No, Henry, they are rubbish. Oh. But they are informative. They are. Okay, uh, let's pull the... What's okay. The green one. On. Are you ready? Yes, that looks like a good one. Yes, ready? hang on. Okay, right, and... Right. And... Oh. Oh. Fantastic. A tiny pack of paper playing cards. Very useful. And a blue hat. Oh, I'm going to read this one, Henry. Go on, you read this. Uh, okay, right, where is it? There was an Englishman. Yes. An Irishman. Yes. And a Scotsman. Yes. In a pub. Oh. And the Irishman said to the Scotsman, Yes. Daisies in turf can be spread and encouraged by which of the following? Right. Over application of fertilizer. Wet conditions or poor drainage, mowers not at a correct cutting height, creating bare patches, or worm activity in soil. Do you know, I'm not sure that that joke would have gone down well in the pubs that I used to frequent, Glenn. But, but, I think the answer is... Henry, this is a family audience. Sorry, Glenn. Sorry, everyone. But look, it's important, though, because uh, we must know how to avoid creating a problem in the first place, mustn't we? If we can avoid getting daisies by using good aeration strategies and the correct drainage, then we can reduce the amount of herbicide applications we need. Yeah. You know, I'm finding your explanations just as funny as the jokes themselves, Glenn. It's a false narrative, Henry. It only works because it doesn't work. At all. 
Everyone's in on the ruse. I know, Glenn. I'm playing along with it by acting the goat. Okay, this is getting very confusing. Anyway, yeah. there's only two <laughs> left. And uh, which one shall I go for? Let's use the gold one. Ooh, a gold one, Glenn. Do you know, this has got to be a very special prize. Are you ready? Yes. Okay. Right. Oh. 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 Wow, this is a a metal wire brain teaser puzzle that if you're lucky you might uncouple by accident and then pretend that you worked it out <laughs> very useful glenn oh and silver hat how pretty okay uh, let's hear that joke okay well this one is farcical glenn <laughs> so right right hang on let me just get it i just read it out which of the following is required to be controlled under the Weeds Act of 1959? Is it Himalayan balsam, ragwort, Japanese knotweed, giant hogweed, or my mother-in-law? <laughs> I made that last one up. Sorry, Hilda. Oh, dear. Uh, well, if the answer isn't Hilda, then I think mm. the answer is... I don't think it's Hilda. <laughs> oh! Now, if we're managing a piece of land, it's important we know the law, isn't it? We do have a legal responsibility. We do, Glenn. Okay, one left. Do you know, I love these crackers, Glenn. They are absolutely hilarious. Right, so the last one then. It's red. It is. Here we go, look. Yes. Are you ready? I am ready. Okay, come on. I'm going to win this one. Right, here we go. Oh. Right, what have we got? Uh, uh, oh, look, it's a blue hat. Oh, nice. Look, Glenn, I don't think I can put any more hats on. I've already got four on. Why don't you try this one? Okay, thanks, Henry. And... Oh, look, look, it's the best. Hat look. Oh, very good, Ben. Thank you. Anyway, anyway, look, oh, look, look, it's the best cracker prize of them all, Glenn. It's the only one of any use. Oh, what have you got, it, what have you got? It's the fortune-telling fish, Glenn. Love a fortune-telling fish. Right, I've got the last joke. You ready? Yeah. All right. So, I went to the doctors the other day with a kidney infection... And she said, Yes. When thinking about disease control, which of the following would especially need to be considered? Mm. The time of the day, the turf species composition, ensuring that the same pesticide mode of action is always used, or ensuring that the same pesticide mode of action is not always used. Well, I thought she said to drink more water, Glenn. Oh, come on, Henry. We covered this in October's episode. This, this one's so important. Well, actually, if you'd have been listening, um, you'd have noticed that we'd actually mentioned it earlier, Glenn. And the answer is... In... Pest... Is not... That was a lot of beeps, Henry. Correct. Well, that was so much fun, Glenn. Yeah, it was. But seriously, everybody, remember to get those applications in as soon as you possibly can. Yes, because it would be great to have a turf winner again uh, next year. 
and the prize is really good. Yeah, it is. It is really good. Now, you can find the entry form on the Syngenta Turf website. Please get involved because I think as an industry, we should be really proud of what we do. And winning this award is a great example of us as an industry telling people we do take this seriously. Oh, yes. Too long spray operators have hidden in the background, not wanting to be inspected or looked at. But now is the time, the time for an uprising of professional spray operators. Oh, look, Glenn, 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 look, look, the head and tail is moving Glenn I'm in love very good shall we set a light to the Christmas pudding I'm not a fan of Christmas pudding Glenn I think I'll go straight to the cheese board if that's okay oh that's a great call Henry have you got any pickle oh yeah Okay, Glenn, as the end of 2023 looms large over that horizon, could you please sum up December in your own inimitable poetic fashion? My pleasure, Henry. Mm. December's tough grasp carries Christmas apprehension as climate change brings a new troublesome dimension. Mm. Grey, damp days with no evapotranspiration, disease pressure rising causing fear and frustration. Climatic patterns shifting, winter gets warmer, no frosts or cold weather to keep fuzz in the corner. Mm. Muddy golf courses, no relief in sight. Impatient golfers, adding to the greenkeeper's plight. Mm. Christmas is coming, the greens will need a spray. Download Turf Advisor, it will help you pick the day. If you don't get a chance, a shrouded sprayer may do if you have a lightweight shrouded pedestrian sprayer then god bless you brilliant as always glenn and thank you i always find your poems strangely affecting my pleasure and so that's it for another year henry yes and it feels like it's been a tough one this one glenn it sure has, Henry. Let's hope for a better 2024. Yes, it's all we can do. So good luck, everyone. Yes, good luck. And we'll see you next month. Oh, BTME on the way, of course. And ATPI. Yes, there's plenty to look forward to, Glenn. Are you heading south, Henry? For the next meeting? Yes, Glenn, I'm mm. on my way. Hi, Glenn. Hi, Henry. Where is everyone? Well, we're meeting up later on. Oh, OK. Well, yeah, I thought it would be better uh, just chatting between ourselves. Oh, that's a good idea. I'm beginning to think those others don't really like me. Nonsense, Glenn. Anyway, so here we are, the last golf course that you managed. And we are here to talk about your own experiences of sward species transformation. And it's a bit blowy up here, Glenn. Yeah, chalk downland on top of the hill overlooking Winchester. Yes, and it really is a beautiful location, isn't it? I can see why you loved it so much. Yeah, I was here for six years, I think, and I had a great time working with the team and the club. This was the course where I started to put my own ideas into practice. Yes. Because before this, in my formative years, I'd been working under a number of really good golf course managers at some great golf courses to learn my trade. But here was where I stood on my own two feet. Yes, and this is where you began to dabble with 
the sword species development of your greens. Yeah, well, it wasn't a be-all and end-all for me, Henry, but it was something I was interested in, as I think most of us are in some way or another. Yes, and the disturbance theory was something that you had come across in passing, possibly, and maybe was a little part of your thinking at the time. Yeah, kind of. I wasn't really a devotee, Henry, but I was definitely aware of you and Richard's work. Okay, so if we recap on our agronomic journey so far, we've been describing sward species composition change for our greens as a gated process with up to four distinct management phases that you need to go through to perform the transition. And we introduced the idea that we need to complete each stage before moving on to the next. Yeah, and if I'm honest, that wasn't something that was clear to me at the time. No, and not just you. And each phase is characterised by fundamentally different styles of greenkeeping uh, in order to match the specific agronomic goals of that phase. And we reinforce the point that if um, you moved on too soon without fully completing the agronomic goals of the previous stage, then you would struggle to make any progress because the essential agronomic platform for the next phase had not properly been created. Yeah, that all passed me by. And so we start the process by creating an open and free draining controllable foundation in phase one and then from phase two onwards we need to tune our management to the needs of the grass types that we're wanting to encourage so what's your story glenn and where were you at in all this well i joined this place uh, as a course manager in 2012 mm. just i think as you were joining icl yes um and, and it will be very familiar with you this scenario around here having been brought up in this area this yes. is a members golf club set upon a chalk downland site with a bit of a parkland aesthetic that was beginning to come too dominant for some of the members so we were in a downland regeneration phase ah. much to the disgust of the other few vocal members who preferred the parkland environment and so from that point of view a little bit quirky agronomically ah. And if we're just thinking about greens, they were a bit of a hodgepodge too, with different construction types. Um, out of the 20 greens present on the golf course, five of them were built in the 1990s when the M3 cut through the corner of the uh. golf course. All of those were sand-based greens, and they varied in terms of elevation. Uh. Uh, the other greens were soil-based and constructed in many different ways. And some of them were carved out of dew ponds on the site. Some of them were mowed into existing chalk downland. Mm. Some of them were carved into the side of hills with varying soil depth. Okay, so right from the start, Glenn, this is already a difficult situation to get to grips with, especially if you're looking to manage any sort of consistency. Yeah, and in terms of their characteristics, due to the hilly terrain, most of the greens were designed to catch running balls or certainly to slow them down to improve golfers' chance of stopping balls or running them into greens. Uh. The greens were fairly undulating, which limited the areas suitable for locating pin positions at modern green speeds. The pinnable areas that did exist had issues with excessive water catching due to the shaping, which led uh. to flooding. And we really needed to invest in intensive drainage in those lower-lying areas to keep them playable through the year. Okay, so extremely challenging in that regard too. 
Yeah, and the drainage was really variable due to the different soil types. In some places, we had chalk in the bottom of the whole cup. In others, it was solid clay and flint. Uh. And the organic matter in the top 20 miller for greens was approximately 13% when I started in 2012. So significantly above where we wanted to be. Yeah, okay. So you were very much in phase one when you got there. How were the greens performing at the time? As you'd expect, Henry, really variable and inconsistent in their performance during the year. You know, as a result of those organic matter content and um, construction types, they were all really vulnerable as well to the development of disease. Uh, Dry patch, uh, the sand-based greens were particularly vulnerable to the development of anthracnose in the summer, and microdokin patch was always a concern in the autumn and winter as well. Okay, so immediately you needed to focus your efforts on improving the situation, which always starts with addressing the agronomic foundations. Yeah, it does. Uh, but the members definitely resisted the installation of drainage, which was far from ideal. We we just kept muddling through, though. We would put pins in high spots during wet weather, and the membership seemed happy enough of that because they didn't want the disruption. No, not ideal at all, Glenn, actually. And and that kind of thing is always a difficult situation to to navigate. Was there any work needed on the surrounding environments? Yeah, there was. There was lots of scrub removal and some tree removal to help improve airflow where it was needed. Very good. Uh, But we mainly set about reducing organic matter content at the turf base. The decision was made to adopt a strategy integrating top dressing to dilute the thatch based on previous successful experiences. You know, we did a significant amount of top dressing. I think we were averaging around 300 tonnes per year for the first couple of years. Loads of large verti drain holes to work sand in, lots of solid tining to work sand in. We were using a pro core to introduce huge amounts of sand into that profile. We mainly leaned on a graden, not the sand injection type. We didn't have one of those, but we mainly leaned on a graden to do the removal of excessive material. Okay, so with that in place, I assume you made good progress. Yeah, I definitely utilised my honeymoon period to go hard. Uh, I think by the second year, the amount of organic matter had decreased down to 7%. By year three, we were down to 5 In the fourth year, we kind of stabilised it out at about 4 Okay, so you worked on your agronomic foundation by amending the upper soil profile, but, but unfortunately no drainage deeper down, and by opening up the surrounding areas, which I would call phase one. But in truth, you weren't really following the disturbance theory process were you you were simply trying to get your agronomic house in order and you were focused mainly on improving the greens playing quality rather than changing the grass types and that's right sward species composition change was definitely not our number one priority i was just trying to firm those surfaces up i was aware of the disturbance theory articles and i'd read them but not really in a way where I was actually practically taking on board what had been said. And I don't think I was really aware that there was a phased process either. I was just going at it. Yes. And and I should say, actually, that this was probably two to three years after our disturbance theory crusade. And by this time, things had very much cooled off and we, we'd moved... Uh, we'd moved on, you know, to focus our attention on performance measurement. And and I have to hold my hands up here, Glenn, during the time when we were writing the articles and doing the presentations, we were working it out as we went along. Um, And so it wasn't always a fully formed idea or, um, you know, we weren't always completely clear what the process was. Uh, I think we got in the end, but if you were 
uh, only engaged in passing, as I think you were, then um, you wouldn't or couldn't have gained a, a full grasp of the pro of the process that we were advocating. And that was the crime, really. Um, and in the spirit of full disclosure, Glenn, I suppose, the, the reason why I'm happy to talk about it this time is because hopefully I can do it more clearly and we can do it from the perspective that we know the process and we can explain it more clearly, you know, if anyone is actually interested. Yeah, I didn't really grasp the method or the process, Henry. Our greens were annual meadow grass dominated to start with. And through the stage of improving that agronomic foundation, things started to change quite quickly with, you know, bent grass really started to increase. And so on that basis, I started to dabble with my maintenance practices to see if I could speed up that transition. Essentially, I eased back on my level of verticutting to reduce the disturbance pressure. Yes, and you said um, last time that you noticed that things quickly began to change after you altered the balance of the environmental pressures. Yeah, absolutely. It was variable. Around the second year, the indigenous bent grass started appearing around the perimeters of those greens where verticutting was not practiced. As the practice of verticutting was reduced, that bent grass started to spread into the slopes and the unpinned areas. However, it did not establish itself in those pinnable areas, which is where the majority of the putting took place, which really raised questions about the factors that was influencing its growth. Now, was it wet conditions? Was it excessive traffic? I just wasn't sure what was driving it. Yeah, absolutely. And, and of course, it is necessary to deal with all the limiting factors for consistent development to proceed. Yeah, and in my case, it turned out that the surfaces of the greens became highly inconsistent and difficult to manage, causing me some significant challenges. Sand-based greens really didn't improve as I expected them to, possibly due to inadequate moisture management leading to that inconsistency. But I really didn't know what I was doing or know that I had to adjust my settings more specifically than just relaxing the verticutting or realistically consider things like treating those sand-based greens differently. And at this time, I think I viewed stress as being a positive driver for change. Whereas what I've learned through this process is I think you would say that comes in a lot later on, if ever it does come in. Although I think I was heading in the right direction, but I just wasn't really clear on my agronomic objective. So if I'm honest, it was just a bit of a mess. Yeah, I, yeah. And I definitely think we need to be really careful about using stress because it is a confining pressure and potentially you know, a potentially damaging factor. But did you ha actually have an objective in mind, you know, for the for the target sward species composition? Uh, not really. I suppose I was wanted a more even blend of bent and annual meadow grass, which would have been good. But what I started seeing was a greater level of inconsistency. I can certainly confirm that when you have a better foundation in place and you alter the maintenance, that reaction is pretty powerful. I just didn't know how to control it, Henry, or when I did, I could only move it positively in some of the areas ah. on the golf course. Yeah, interesting. So so what about overseeding? Was that being used to drive development? You know, creeping bent grass is, is more in the game now for people. Uh, the indigenous bent grass responded immediately, so overseeding took a back seat. Uh, we did do some overseeding at year four, but seemingly with very little success. But I wasn't implementing any phase two strategies to really help establish it. I was just throwing it into my phase one management plan. And so it was probably bound to fail in hindsight. 
but the demands on me meant that I had to get cutting heights down quick as I needed a putting surface and so there was no room for it to really take a foothold in the spring but it was an afterthought if I'm honest I'd never really committed to it okay so what about your nitrogen inputs 90 to 120 kilos of n per year i would guess uh, but no compensation being made for the difference between the sand and the soil based greens i think now that i might have been better employing some slow release granules on those here and there just to take the nutrient stress out of the sand based greens uh, because it's clear to me now that it was the traffic stress and the moisture management that was holding back the development of those greens rather than encouraging it yeah, and were you working towards specific soil moisture content targets? Yeah, I was. I was quite strong on this. But in hindsight, I think I was setting them far too low. I was mm. aiming at 20% as a maximum, um, you know, to try and induce some of that stress, which was always hard work as there was just too much stress in the game for things to develop, especially on those sand-based greens. I would definitely reset those targets if I had my time again upwards of 25% just to give myself a break as much as anything and I'd also utilize the very best surfactant technology I didn't do that then um, because that would have helped me even out my moisture program I was using stress far too early I would be keeping that out now certainly until I was much further down the road anyway yeah completely agree yeah, um, phase two is more about easing up on the disturbance pressure and keeping stress to a minimum really um you know, you need to allow the new grasses a chance to establish, don't you? So what about your mowing heights? Yeah, 2.2 in the summer, uh, 4 mil highest in the winter. I think in the summer that I needed to keep those indigenous leggy bents that were coming in quite strongly. I needed to keep them under control to make a decent putting surface. And since I'd taken verticutting out of my armory because I didn't want to disturb anything, I was left with cutting heights, brushing and occasional grooming because that was disturbance and i was trying to avoid it yeah you were out of phase glenn and i was yeah and those those indigenous bends can be really coarse can't they what about the using primo max to help in that regard yeah it helped but i didn't have my program down tight henry i've learned loads since i've stepped into this role and in hindsight again i would have started earlier i would have used growth degree days to tighten down those windows in the summer and I think I'd just done a much, I would have done a much tighter job than I did. In hindsight, I was over-regulating in the spring, and then I would be in and out of regulation far more than I should have been during the summer months. Okay, so what were your playing quality targets then? Well, I took this one quite seriously. I was very focused on green speed. It's a while ago now, but I'm sure I wanted to be kind of nine and a half to ten foot every day. But I was taking that reading from the same spot on the putting green outside the clubhouse, which was one of the sand-based construction greens, and it was very different to the others. And on reflection, wrong green, wrong metric. Uh. But in reality, to keep members happy, uh, I guess the metric was the quicker the better, if I'm honest. Um, what I focused on was speed from day to day to create consistency i was looking at is that speed reading on the putting green the same today as it is tomorrow oh. but what i should have been focused on was consistency across all 18 greens um, in order to make a much more consistent experience for the golfer and maybe even the same consistent speed across an individual putting surface would have been nice too but hindsight's a wonderful thing isn't it the pressures on green keepers are absolutely huge and i don't think anyone has time to do those kind of things or 
or that anyone really appreciates the challenges people are under either. Yeah, fair enough. Um, okay, so what about turf ironing and stuff like that? Yeah, well, it was always in there, but we were always at full stretch. You know, using those tools to keep a smooth surface in combination with my mowing. Um, I don't think I ever felt I was at a phase where I could lift cutting heights and use rolling. It was always a kind of roll is just about enough to get me where I need to. Yeah, even if it's a even if it's a fraction. But you know, working towards specific playing quality targets, speed and scoring the smoothness would really help sort of guide your maintenance and 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 can show you very clearly where you can relax actually or or uh, or sort of refocus your efforts rather than doing everything all of the time out of interest did you see any of the coarser the other coarser grasses jumping in uh, because yorkshire fog and perennial ryegrass also like a reduced level of disturbance pressure yeah, we had quite a lot of ryegrass coming in. Um, I think it had always been there, but once we took the verticutting out, it was allowed to to move. Um, you know, we had to go full on rescue in one year. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you can get really powerful reactions of of undesired species as well, and that is something to to really be mindful of. You know, selective graminicides such as rescue were always a part of this process in phase two. We need rescue back glenn and as soon as possible you know we are looking at it henry <laughs> yeah look it's vitally important you know there's no getting away from it okay so in hindsight i'd have to say that you know very much i could have explained things so much better and i've got to say i do feel responsible for your problems glenn it should have been so much clearer for you um to help you focus your efforts better and and, and allow you to simply set you know the correct agronomic balance to help the bent grass you know that you wanted to develop more consistently and you know as an agronomist i you know that's why i sort of view it as a sort of massive failure really because because it wasn't clear to you and i'm sorry about that glenn anyway so looking back what would you do differently glenn well, in hindsight, I think I would place more of an emphasis on drainage, mm-hmm. but not just drainage through the profile. I'd potentially look to redesign certain areas of greens to make them more pinnable or less surface water catching. Um, in fact, I know my successor has done some of this. He forged on and did a better job of driving that agenda through than I did. I always felt as though success for those kind of initiatives was lacking. So I probably gave up sooner than I should have. Um, I think I would have used my verticutting uh, techniques longer. I should have employed them more to control the spread of that bent grass, actually holding it back until the entire set of greens were ready for that next phase of transition. And I think I would definitely try and finish phase one properly rather than rushing out of it. Um, I definitely wait till I was in phase two before going at autumn overseeding and seeing if I could adjust that balance. Uh, uh, I could probably see how my performance measurements and working to specific targets could have been better. I think that would have helped me stay on focus and on track more. Um, you know, just stay focused on my agronomic objectives and not pushing so hard all the time. But... I'm forgetting how demanding a period it was. There were significant efforts required to maintain satisfactory putting surfaces. So I think thinking beyond that was really difficult. And I also think, I don't think I would have told anyone 
a single thing about my grass species compositions ambitions i think i would have just got quietly on with my job but the mistake i told is i told people about it and i told the membership i was going to do it and then every time someone came to me with some negative feedback about the surfaces i used that as an excuse and thinking about it, it's no wonder the membership didn't enjoy the process um I don't know why I felt a need to pin my colours to a mast and telling them everyone I was going to do it. I think it just left me trapped in a corner. Yeah, yeah, I've got to agree with you there, Glenn. It's a shame to say it, isn't it? But it just causes problems, doesn't it? You become a hostage to fortune. And so, look, there's plenty of lessons to be learned in all this. And, of course, you know... Let's not forget, let's not forget, actually, that sword species comp composition change or transition is a long-term objective, isn't it? Um, and it shouldn't be a day-to-day -day distraction. And in the shorter term, there are there's, there's real benefits going on from, from making that transition anyway. You know, each month we talk about the negative agronomic impacts of... Um, well, overly intensive maintenance, really. And so the move into a slightly relaxed phase two, you know, has immediate agronomic benefits, you know, in that regard, doesn't it? Um, but we always need to have playing quality as our primary objective. Yeah, I get that, but it's not easy in practice, or at least it wasn't easy for my time around, but... I guess I should say my successor seems to be doing okay with it. The members love him and he is moving things slowly in the right direction. Mm. He's not drawing any attention to it or himself. He's just making good, solid progress, presenting good surfaces and moving everything slowly into phase two. Yeah, but let's not forget that you really did your bit, Glenn, because the worst phase is the first phase and you made great progress in that area. And went a very long way to sorting out phase one, which made the rest of it a whole lot easier. Yeah, if you say so, Henry. I do, Glenn. And so thank you for that. It's always better to discuss the realities rather than the theory. Right. Shall we go and see the gang? Because I believe the circus is in town, Glenn, down at the recreation ground. It's one of my earliest memories, Glenn, of the ringmaster in particular. And so I thought we'd meet up there. OK, I'll catch up with you a little later on. OK, I'll see you on the carousel at seven o'clock sharp, Glenn. Oh, hi, Henry. Oh, hi, Glenn. Who'd have thought it? I know, you just can't write the script. And it really is a merry-go-round, isn't it? What, Glenn? Life? Yeah, I know what you mean. It just keeps coming round. No, I mean the ride we're on. It's a merry-go-round. Ah, I see. Yes, but it's still got its ups and downs, though. Anyway, um, where's the meeting? It's in the Fortune Teller's tent, then. I like it, Henry. Yes, Madame Voyant said it would be okay. Claire? Yes, of course. She said it would be okay as long as we paid for a few readings along the way. No, I'm not sure about that. It's okay, Glenn. She said it's always very dull and fairly inevitable in the end. No, that's good. I, I'm not a big fan of surprises. Don't worry, Glenn. There won't be any of those. 
Oh, hi everyone. Have you all met Claire? Yes. She said that Glenn did a good job with the soil profile management, but he didn't really have a full grasp of the phases. It cost me five quid. Yes, she is very good, isn't she? But I did hold my hand up to that, having not properly communicated the idea first time round. Yeah, she threw that in for an extra 50 pence. Every little helps, my dearies, and I'm only happy to assist. Thanks, Claire. In fairness, I did see fairly rapid changes in the sward species composition, having set a better foundation and by reducing the level of verticutting. I just didn't really complete phase one properly by not installing localised drainage or improved pinnable areas. Yes, it's important to deal with all the limiting factors and of course there is more to phase two than just reducing the level of verticutting. Aye, there is that. Yes, the phases escaped me. But you did do a good job in difficult circumstances. But to move on, knowing what you know now, you just needed to finish off the job to get out of phase one and into phase two, and then change the emphasis of your maintenance to encourage the establishment of the desired species, which for you, Glenn, would have been a far greater proportion of either brown top or creeping bent grass to create more consistent and agronomically robust surfaces. Yeah, probably, because I knew from my experience that annual meadow grass was a fickle friend and probably couldn't be completely relied upon during periods of stress or high disease pressure. I was constantly battling anthracnose, microdochium packs, seed head production and poor stress tolerance and I would have certainly wanted better quality grass coverage if it was possible. But I'm not sure the members were that bothered and they certainly didn't accept us dropping playing quality if and when that was required. And that's all well and good my lovelies but I need to feed my cats. Sorry Claire. Go on Glenn. Okay, if I have to. And what would you like, my dearie-o? Um, do you do the fortune-telling fish? Only on Christmas Day. How about a palm reading? Oh, okay then. Um, here you go. Interesting. Well, Glenn, I can see that you are a man who likes to learn things the hard way. Really? Why would you say that? You only have half an index finger, Glenn. Me too. I've lost two. Yeah, and me. It's the Greenkeeper's badge of honour. True enough. What else? Well, Glenn. Looking here, you have a deep heart line to indicate that you are a person with strong convictions. And you have a straight head line showing the, showing that you are a logical and analytical thinker. Your little finger shows that you are strong in communication and persuasion. And also, Glenn, your nails could do with a bit of a clean. Which means that you are a kind and generous soul. Wow. I never knew there was so much in it. That'll be five pounds, please, plus tip. Fair enough. Uh, any of you lot lend me a fiver? Bloody hell. No way. He's got a cheek. Okay, shall we move on? So, when we move into phase two, we need to change our tack. 
the maintenance that created the foundation is now not conducive to the establishment of your desired species. And so we need to make some adjustments. Yes. And you mentioned that a knowledge of environmental pressures and plant growth strategies is important as we move through these remaining phases. Yes, because now we need to create the conditions for the desired species to be able to establish and then thrive. Okay, so I think we might be familiar with stress, but what about the other two environmental pressures of disturbance and competition? Well, it's a fairly simple idea, Glenn. You know, each environment can be classified in terms of the relative balance of the three environmental pressures, with these being stress, disturbance and competition. And the plants that are able to survive and thrive in those environments do so because they have adapted special traits that suit the particular environmental conditions. So in simple terms, some plants are stress tolerators, depending on the balance of the stresses, whilst others, if competition is more dominant, might be more competitive. A cactus, for example, is a stress tolerator and very different in its nature than an oak tree, which is more competitive because they're adapted to survive in different environments. Yeah, and of course they've adapted through evolution, haven't they? Yes, exactly. Each plant species has evolved its special traits to fit particular environmental niches. The ability to retain water in a desert, for example, would be an example of stress tolerance. Okay, so, so what are the pressures of stress, disturbance and competition? And how do they reflect themselves in the evolved characteristics of the turf grasses? Then? Well, they are all very different in their nature. The stresses are the environmental constraints to growth. You know, things like suboptimal temperatures, hot, cold, light, water availability and a lack of sufficient nutrient. These will all limit plant growth and they would give rise to what we call hardy plants, which are plants that are able to survive in those constrained conditions. And the cactus? Yes, would be a good example. Competition describes the battle for resources between plants and so competitive plants are quick growing and aggressively exclusive towards other plants both above and below ground, you know, like an extensive canopy or root system. Disturbance, on the other hand, is a different kind of environmental pressure and it concerns physical damage and the removal of plant biomass. And for this, we would think easily about things like uh, mowing and verticutting. And a highly disturbed environment would promote the development of plants that are quick to grow and reproduce and unlike the stress tolerators disturbance loving plants invest their energies in the seed rather than themselves and so disturbance loving plants aren't hardy at all but rather than these extreme examples in reality there would be um, probably more of a mix of the three pressures operating at lower levels in the majority of environments and this would give rise to intermediate growth strategies or adaptations. So all plants are the way they are to exploit a particular environmental condition? 
Yes, they have each evolved their own specialisms. And the point is, Glenn, that greenkeepers and course managers can exploit this understanding because, of course, we have our hands and can control a number of sources of these environmental pressures of stress, disturbance and competition, meaning that we have the ability to a certain degree to manipulate the environment in favour of the development of particular species. And you saw for yourself that a slight change in the balance of environmental pressures can quickly result in a change in the species composition. Okay, so what about the grasses then? You'd think that they would mm. all be adapted to survive in relatively similar environments. After all, they all look pretty similar. Well, you'd think so, wouldn't you? But, true to form, they all have their own unique specialisms and adaptations that we can exploit. And we got all this from the comparative plant ecology work carried out by Professor Philip Grime and his colleagues. And we used his classifications. And so, annual meadowgrass is the absolute king of disturbance-loving plants. It is quick-growing, it invests mainly in quick reproduction and seed production rather than itself. And so it is not adapted to withstand, well, really any level of stress at all. On the other hand, brown top bents, in general terms, are adapted to survive and thrive in environments that do have moderate levels of stress, but they're also um, able to withstand disturbance and they're also slightly competitive in their nature. It is a hardier and more stress-tolerant plant than annual meadowgrass, but not so good at coping with super-high levels of disturbance or indeed stress. The slender-creeping red fescues are like the brown top bent in that they are adapted to survive moderate levels of stress, disturbance and competition. And the mistake that we make with them is to think that they're stress tolerators, but they aren't. It's the sheep's fescue that is the bona fide stress tolerator. And this knowledge is important when we're thinking about setting an environment to encourage their development. They don't like too much stress, but they don't like too much disturbance either. The creeping bent grasses, finally, are adapted to survive moderate to high levels of disturbance pressure and they will exert their competitive abilities above and below ground, you know, shoot density and extensive root development if stress is kept at a reasonable level and the disturbance pressure is relaxed slightly. It's certainly more stress-tolerant than annual meadowgrass, but care would be needed if trying to encourage the development of creeping bent grass, especially if we're thinking about the type of stress. And so um, we can see that the turf grass species have all adapted different growth strategies to survive in different environmental conditions. And so our agronomic trick is to create the environmental conditions that suit our desired species. And we do this by playing with the pressures that are at our disposal.
Well, how nice, my lovelies, but I can see that we are going to fall out if you don't cross my hand with silver any time soon. Keith? Bloody hell. Can you sub me a fiver, Michael? I'll pay you back. I never heard that one before. Thank you, my lovely. What can I do for you? A crystal ball, I suppose. Very wise. If you would all be quiet for a minute. Ah, yes. The mist is clearing, and I can see a dark and bleak moor with an imposing and isolated tower in the distance, and the wind is howling, and the sleet is lashing down and strafing your skin, and you are struggling against all the elements with all your might in a diabolical and unending battle for existence itself. So you've been to Darwin, then? It's not so bad when you get to know it. The people are really nice. That is uncanny. And so getting back to the matter in hand, the idea is that if we want to encourage the development of a particular species, and we need yes. to create the environment that suits it. Yes. But firstly, we need to have created a suitable foundation to be able to set that conducive environment phase one yes and then we adjust our program settings to help us establish new seedlings and we then allow them to develop with careful handling phase two yes and then when we have made enough progress we continue the development of our desired species by making further changes but this time subtly trying to discourage the presence of our undesired species, once again, through a knowledge of their growth strategies. But now the weaknesses of the undesired species slightly come to the fore. Phase three management. Yes, and then if we should ever get there, Glenn, but sometimes people do with new establishments, phase four management is all about preventing the deterioration of an ideal and pure sword and that requires you to employ different tactics to try to prevent the development of annual metagrass in particular. But the point of the disturbance theory was that an understanding of the plant growth strategies and environmental pressures brings you to different conclusions about the required environment for fine bents and fescues than the conventional wisdom that was being recommended previously when the use of stress was thought of as being the primary driver for change. Yes, which is dangerous and it can be devastating, especially to playing quality. But with this way of thinking, we employ the positive drivers of e easing disturbance and allowing a degree of competition to take place, with only a touch of specialist stress being employed later in the game. We are certainly not inviting the sword to crash. And so if we are now in phase two... We set about cracking on with overseeding and setting a slightly lower level of disturbance pressure. Relaxed mowing, verticutting, less top dressing, um, less brushing intensity. You know, we need to allow the new seedlings a chance to establish and we achieve this relaxation without any compromise by 
constantly monitoring our playing qualities and sticking to agreed performance targets, particularly in terms of green speed and by rating surface smoothness using the bobble test. Yeah, and there's a nice discussion about that on the ATC Double Cut podcast between Micah Woods and Chris Tritterberg. Yeah, and we use the bobble test to quickly score the smoothness of the roll as part of our green speed uh, measurements to make sure that we are always working to target and focusing our efforts properly. Yeah, and you are focusing on smoothness as a means of achieving your green speed target because a smoother ball roll will travel further. Yes, and by focusing on smoothness as well as green speed in phase two rather than just solely green speed, it will hopefully help you to pull away from overly aggressive mowing and verti-cutting and move you towards things like light top dressing and occasional turf ironing to allow you to hit your targets. A smoothness focus will show you how to relax your disturbance pressure without sacrificing playing quality in any way. Which is a neat trick. Yes, our agronomic trick. And it works. And it only takes a few minutes. Listen to Micah and Chris if you want to find out more. Ahem. That's all well and good, my dearies. But I have to earn a living. Yep, my turn, Claire. Tea leaves, please. Ah, the ancient art of tassiography. The most powerful kind of auger. Do you have any particular tea in mind, my lovely? No, for God's sake, don't ask him that. Do you have any half-fermented Formosa oolong, Claire? I got some in especially, my lovely. Oh, she's very good. Now, if you could open your mind to your stream of thoughts while drinking it, then I will take your reading when you've finished. Lovely. Okay, let me give them a final swirl and I'll see what they bring. Oh dear. Oh dear, oh dear, oh dear. I see a dark horizon, Henry. I see confusion and I see an unsatisfactory ending. Well, I don't think it was that bad. A little too bitter on the aftertaste, maybe, but generally okay. Hello, Henry. What's all this nonsense about? Oh, Oh, hello, Richard. And about time, too. I was just preparing a big entrance for you. Yes, well, should we grab a cuppa and talk about it? I'm gasping. Yes, there is a lovely tea shop just round the corner. Excellent. I'd love an oolong. Half fermented? Of course. It's been too long, Richard. Well, I didn't see that coming, my dearies. I must be losing my touch. So how are you? Hi, good. How about you? Yep, just having a bit of fun, Richard. Yes, I've been enjoying it so far. You know, there is so much to catch up on, and we haven't even scratched the surface. This way, everyone. 